All right, so last time we talked a good deal about the overview of how someone might go from being a visitor or someone who's acquainted uh, generally uh, with somebody at the church to becoming an unbaptized catechumen, how uh, one would be a uh, child in the faith uh, for a period of time. That would include, once they you know, believe they are um, a baptized catechumen or if they were born into a house, that is a Christian house. They would, of course, be baptized even before profession. But the idea of a catechumen, then they become a communicant member. Then they seek to be established in the faith so they can become a young man. Then, as a young man, they are learning and able to do more and more. And the desire is to make sure that they can assist others in work and become veteran soldiers. Not just soldiers in the faith, not just young men, but veteran soldiers and then eventually completing a skills process of, of the man of valor training and also um, the young man two, which when completed would mean that you are a father in the faith. And then fathers in the faith, we would seek to train them uh, to have skills that we, we call the mighty man skill set, those things that are meant to make it so that you are skillful, not just decisive like a man of valor, but even skillful. And so then a person would be fit for the eldership, whereas a young man who has completed young man uh, training one and a man of valor training would be fit for uh, being a deacon. Also, officers' wives would be expected to minimally have completed the young man one and the man of valor type of training. So those are the, uh, the things that we went over last time. On page two, we talked about the purpose. Uh, you know, what is a... Uh, a young man in the faith. We talked about the goals of the document. We talked about what it is that a young man's expected to understand, which is a review of essentially the stuff that was in the child's uh, document. So that's laid out was the you know, having a good understanding of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Church Covenant, the Gospel, which is broken down into the Solos Tulip Covenant Theology, the Trinity, and Incarnation. Um, and then we talked about some of the other things that are our practical elements. Those are three, four, and five there. Um, and so then there's the needs for maturing and the needs for equipping um, and how that would work. And I spent some time reviewing the overview of the Bible uh, in terms of the biblical things that would be useful for them to know. So my intention today is to spend uh, some more time on talking about the biblical things and helping to try to cement for you all some of those biblical ideas along with on page 5 uh, the Bible history um, and that goes into page six as well in terms of the end of history. Um, I had on the previous version a little bit different order, um, and I'm trying to figure out how to make this easiest to digest. So that's, there wasn't so much a change of content there as there was a change of order, and that's because of the ease of connecting the Bible, the books of the Bible, with the history part. So I want to make it easier for you guys to see how that continuous history connects to a timeline. So there's a change on this handout here today. Um, so, just to be clear, you all have the version I just expressed. We like printed another one and gave it to you. I'm worried because I remember asking. So, do you have on page? Do you have on page five a Bible history timeline? Yes. Okay. Great. All right. So, page three, bottom of page three. <clears throat> These are a reminder. The 66 books of the Bible should be the constant companion of someone who is a young man in the faith. 
Your goal is to take in the word and to be nurtured by it. Now, think about what we studied today in John. In John 4, we talked about the nurture of the bread and the nurture of the water of life. And so that's what this is about. This is about you know, young men, you expect to eat you out of house and home so that you can hardly afford to stay in the place. They're eating so much food. That's the, that's the goal here. If this cost money per proposition, the goal would be that you turn the lights off, right? That you are eating so much of the word that it is something where it is difficult to keep up with the demand for it. So a young man can grow fast. Now, the main institutions of life that need to be dealt with are the individual, the household, the church, and the state. Okay, on pages 3 and 4, you see those. The individual self-government is something that a young man needs to understand very well because if you don't, under, if you don't govern yourself well, you're never going to really escape the young man stage. In fact, you will be an easily conquerable place. Okay? A man without self-control is like a city without walls. The glory of a young man is his strength. So if you want to be strong and useful, if you want to be mighty to overcome the wicked one, you need self-control. And so self-government is about studying the Word of God, informing your conscience with it, and seeing yourself renewed after the image of God, after the image of Christ, in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. And so then you exercise dominion by working, building stuff, making new things, and keeping, preserving what's already been attained. And you seek to do that as a prophet, priest, king. Now, if you don't know what that stuff means, you're going to have a really hard time trying to do it. Is that a pregnant enough pause? If you don't know what those things mean, you're going to have a really hard time doing it. So, we need to know well what the image of God is. We need to know well what it means to exercise dominion. We need to know well what the three offices are. Prophet, priest, king. And we need to know the law of God is the instruction set for us how to govern ourselves. Now, the household, you've got in a household... A man is governing that house, and a wife is the queen of the house. There's, each have three offices as master, husband, and father. The word of God needs to be used to govern the house, and the rod is the special tool that causes pain. So the conscience causes pain for the individual. The rod causes pain in the house. And the man of the house is the master, husband, and father of the house. And the woman of the house is the mistress, wife, and mother of the house. And the goal is to build up wealth and wisdom, to share it with those who are under authority, to govern the house according to that, and to make it so there's extra resources so that generosity, hospitality, and ultimately additional resources so that the man can govern in the public sphere are available. Capital accumulation and unity of operation based in unity of truth are the operating principles for the household. Here's something else that you need to understand. The individual and the household are about consolidated monarchical authority. The individual and the household are controlled, centralized powers. They are meant to be efficient. The individual governs himself, and you're supposed to make decisions fast. You are to be decisive, a man of valor, and you're supposed to be skilled, a mighty man. You get stuff done fast, and you are answerable to God for what you've done with yourself. The household... 
The husband is king. And he is supposed to make decisions, and the wife is to be his helper, and the children are to help them to accomplish things, and any servants are to help them. It is not a deliberative body. It is not a council where votes are held. It is an authority in the house of the man. And the wife is his queen. And that means that her authority is to be respected by the children and by the servants. And her desire is to roll out his rule in detail. The household is meant to be a place of efficiency. It is meant to be a place where dominion is taken fast. It is meant to be a place where the husband ministers to the wife and together they carry out what he, the head of the wife, determines for their dominion work. The father and the mother together teach the children and work together to powerfully speak as a dual witness into the home. So they are places of efficiency. When you get to the church and when you get to the state, they are designed to be inefficient. They are designed to be inefficient. They are councils with public deliberative bodies. So this shows you where the decision throughput is supposed to be fast. Individuals have to make decisions all the time, moment by moment by moment by moment. Households have to have decisions about the management of goods and time done moment by moment by moment by moment. They are meant to be efficient bodies for dominion. The church has a far more restrained authority. It has public teaching of doctrine, public worship, and public government, where the word is taught, and the word controls how those things are used, and the keys are exercised in terms of government, and the keys are letting people in, and the keys are removing people. With the church, it is designed to make it so that only very high-quality doctrine passes through a laborious quality assurance process. How many quality assurance checkers do we have right now for the product of doctrine that's coming from the pulpit? Okay? You are all assigned to the duty of checking it. So there is a highly laborious process of checking the doctrine to see that it is of proper quality. So the throughput is reduced and quality is emphasized. The same is true with any elements of worship that anybody would want to institute. Right? Only Christ should be instituting elements of worship for us. And so your job for all of those things is to stop it. And with government, we should only be exercising government in the way that Christ has instituted in his church. And so there's a laborious process to examine the exercise of power. Do you see how much less efficient that is than the design of the individual's decision-making process and the household's decision-making process? The regulative principle, which requires positive warrant for any element of doctrine, worship, or government, 
is something where you're supposed to be constantly having the public teachers and public governors demonstrating their work. This is a math problem, and they show you every step. Instead, with the individual in the household, in order to stop anybody, you're supposed to have to bring charges against them for what's going on. The church life principally occurs on the Sabbath, and then there are occasional thanksgivings, fastings, and governmental assemblies that would occur aside from that. The life of the saints occurs mainly in breaking bread from house to house and working together in daily life. So you see these institutions. The time we spend in the assembly is much shorter and it is designed to be focused around Sabbath life. So you can see if you get rid of the Sabbath, you have gotten rid of the day for the church. And when the Sabbath is gone, the church soon dies and becomes a consumeristic thing that is you're trying to convince people to come to a voluntary association. Page four. The state. The state is to be governed by the word of God and it uses the sword. It uses coercive power to accomplish things. Christ's rule should be manifest in the state and recognized. Christ should be acknowledged as the king of kings. Kings are restrained by acknowledging the binding power of Christ's law on them. Otherwise, they act like gods on earth. The law comes from Christ. The law is for the preservation of liberty and for the administration of justice. Civil covenanting is the life of a civil magistracy. Without civil covenanting, people do not understand their duties of loyalty to the state, and they do not understand the limits of the state. And so, civil covenanting is an institution that has been abandoned in America, and as a result, the state continues to expand. State olatry, the worship of the state, and a view of the state is all extending, omnicompetent, and allowed to go into every sphere of authority, is something that expands as civil covenanting is not understood. The death of the Sabbath And the death of civil covenanting in America are the reasons why our public institutions are as weak as they are. And why those institutions do not acknowledge the authority of the individual and the household in ways that they ought. So those institutions are the loci, they are the focal points where work gets done. God has designed reality so that those loci, those focal points, are where work gets done. And if we don't understand those covenantal institutions, those covenantal obligations, those orbital points to gather around, we are going to fail and put our attention in all sorts of other stuff. And here's what gets the bulk of people's attention. Voluntary associations around other stuff. Friend groups, not governed by covenant, activities that are voluntary associations, that kind of thing. There's this draw to games, to pleasures, to voluntary associations, and people are frequently frustrated by the friends they have in those spheres because those friends don't understand the mutual duties, and so friendship is dying. In America, you can go Google this. You find 
you know, the death of friendship. Go Google, like, men don't have friends. Like, you, you will find that friendship is becoming harder and harder to find. People are more connected than ever, but they have a harder and harder time finding friends. That's because friends require a mutual commitment to each other's good. So no covenant, and friendship becomes very brittle and very short in its lifespan. So young men who need to cooperate together, who need to work together in the covenant spheres, they need to understand these spheres so they know where they fit in. The strength of a young man without being self-controlled and without knowing about the institutions where he's supposed to focus himself makes it so that the young man's strength is uncontrolled. And a man without self-control is like a city without walls. So, we talked about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the book that will teach self-control. The book of Proverbs is the book that will teach self-control. It is a book focused on teaching that. It is about warnings of things that are the, the, the likely traps. It's a, it's a warfare manual to teach self-control and warn against the ways in which the devil breaks down the walls. Without right doctrine, without the gospel, you will fail to understand what you need to with Proverbs. You will be a fool reading Proverbs. And fools reading Proverbs do not know how to read Proverbs. So Romans lays out the gospel. It lays out a basic organization of duties of practice as well. And then John lays out the gospel, teaches us about Jesus as God. So we talked about that last time. So now, the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible, Genesis through 2 Kings. Continuous history. We talked about that. What I want to do so I want to pause here and I want to jump now to page 5. Okay, so page 5. You know those are two separate sheets, right? It's not front and back. So I would encourage you to try to make these things visible simultaneously if you can. If you have to tear it apart, do that. Whatever you're going to do, put them side by side next to each other. Okay, so think about... Think about Genesis through 2 Kings. Yeah, you see that there on page 4. Genesis starts where the Bible history starts, which is creation. We have Adam there. Okay, 2 Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. So A through J. That's the history there. Okay, so we're going to 4000 B.C., to basically 600 B.C. So we're looking at something like 3,400 years of history there. 3,400 years of history. Now, in that 3,400 years of history, we have a huge amount that occurs. So with creation, the flood, Abraham, Moses, and the Exodus, Joshua conquering the Promised Land, the whole period of the judges of 400 years, Saul as the first king, David, Solomon with the temple and his writing of the wisdom books, we get through that. That's a huge chunk of time. We're looking at like 3,000 years right there. And then you have a lot of writing about the decline of Israel and the ups and downs in Judah. And then you have the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. 
Okay, so all that, that's Genesis through 2 Kings. So these are the really major plot points. These are the really major plot points. And you need to know these plot points if you're trying to piece together the Bible. But my hope is that seeing that big chunk, right, Genesis through 2 Kings, and seeing A through J as the big plot points makes it so that conceptually it's a lot easier to pull together. So Genesis by itself, look at that. It covers A, B, and C, right? On page 5 here, we got creation in 4,000 with Adam. We have Noah with the flood in 2,500. And we have Abraham in 2000 BC. And it takes us from him up into Isaac and then Jacob. And then we have his sons and they move into Egypt, right? And the simultaneous thing we have, you know, Melchizedek interacts with Abraham. Job interacts uh, with the same sort of space and time. So those are major figures there. But we have. Adam, Noah, and Abraham are major covenantal figures. Those are three administrations of the covenant of grace, all there in the book of Genesis. Three out of six. Fifty percent of the administrations of the covenant of grace are in Genesis. So then, we get to Exodus. And Exodus has Moses. And then, of course, you have Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Right, which are going to tell you more about Moses, and it prepares. In Deuteronomy, you have the death of Moses, and the last part of it, you're reading it, right, and it says, and Moses died. And you're like, did Moses die while he was writing that verse? Because yeah, Jesus said that Moses wrote those books. But the very end of that book is written by Joshua. And so you have, from Genesis through that portion of Deuteronomy, it's written by Moses. Now, I believe that portions of Genesis may well have been scripture from men even going back to Adam and being preserved, but I believe that Moses is the one who gives to us Genesis in the form that it is then used as the foundation for the rest of scripture. So the idea that there's, there's propositional revelation all the way going back to Adam, but what we have is Moses as the inspired writer of Genesis in the form that we get it. So then... When you, when you carry forward and you look at, okay, Joshua is writing there at the end of Deuteronomy. He then writes Joshua, and then Joshua dies. Okay, and it's, again, it's like, did he die while he was writing about his death? But you're going to find this over and over again all the way through the end of 2 Kings. You're going to find talking about prophets who are the authors of the section, and then they die, and the other prophet picks it up. So there's this continuous handing off of the prophetic writing in Genesis through 2 Kings. That's why it's such a remarkable block of text. So Genesis through 2 Kings. So we're looking at this 3,400 year period of history there. So that's A through J. Now, look at page 4. Under C. Okay, so C, this is stuff that's going to overlap in large degree, but it's very important that you know as a young man Genesis through 2 Kings, that you've read that, that you're familiar with it. And a lot of it's very interesting. It is, a lot of it is a bunch of stories that, whether you're a young man or an old man, you're going to find that stuff fascinating. And 
there's a really large emphasis in that text on warfare. The warfare that gets emphasized is Joshua's warfare, the warfare of the judges, the warfare that David is involved in. The other wars that occur, there's a lot of other wars, but the other wars are far less emphasized. You will find some emphasis on Hezekiah's warfare, but warfare with Hezekiah is not Hezekiah gloriously going out to battle and winning. Warfare for Hezekiah is he's trapped in Jerusalem, surrounded by Sennacherib's 185,000 soldiers from Assyria. And he prays and goes before God and says, God, they're mocking you. And then God kills all of them in one night, except for Sennacherib. And he wakes up surrounded by dead soldiers, goes back home, and is assassinated by his own sons. Now then you get to Josiah, and King Josiah is a great king, and he has one war that is emphasized, and that is a war where God told him not to go, and then he goes, and then he dies. Okay, so the emphasis on the successful wars, Joshua, some of the judges, and David. So what is this designed to do? Well, you, you have the first war that gets brought up, it's a good war, is Abraham going to save Lot. And then we have the war for the conquest of the promised land. And then we have the judges, the ups and downs there, and we have David. These are all wars where there's an encouragement to righteous fighting, the defending good things. And then, with Hezekiah and Josiah, you have this huge emphasis on God's the one that gives the victory. You don't have the strength in yourself. And don't go fight foolish wars. Don't go fight a war that God says not to fight. Okay, so emphasis, huge emphasis on wars, righteous wars, unrighteous wars, the foolishness of going into some wars, this idea that young men are fighters, and there's an emphasis on the kings here, and the kings with all this fighting. So this is, I think, designed by God to be something where you are drawn in, especially as a young man, growing in strength, and you examine all of this stuff, and this is interesting stuff. So the portion that's followed, okay, on page four, section C, okay, Leviticus, first and second chronicles, and Ezra. This is all priestly history. And it is the idea of how do you maintain a team, how do you build a team, how do you guard a team. And this regathering together in the exile is a big part there. So look at page 5. Okay, so the destruction of Jerusalem occurs in 587. And that's J. So 537 is when Cyrus the Great of Persia issues the decree to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. And this is a very emphasized part of the Bible. This decree is how the book of 2 Chronicles ends. This decree is how Ezra begins. This decree is prophesied by Isaiah. And Cyrus sees this and reads it. Cyrus himself reads Isaiah prophesying Cyrus writing the decree. So this is a major emphasis of Scripture is this this 
this decree to rebuild the temple. And this decree to rebuild the temple is used as a counting point when Daniel prophesies the coming of Messiah. Okay, it's an anchor for counting the coming of Messiah. Around 400 B.C., the Old Testament is complete. And the, la- the last verse in the Bible is either in Malachi or it's in Nehemiah. And I think it, the, Nehemiah, who talks about some of the high priests, for example, and he goes out, he lists the high priest, that is the last high priest Nehemiah lists, is the high priest that Josephus records as meeting with Alexander the Great when Alexander asks for the surrender of Jerusalem. So whether that is prophecy, or whether there's an old age there for Nehemiah, that man who's listed there is the man that Josephus records as being the high priest at the time of Alexander the Great. And Daniel prophesies a great deal about what Alexander the Great would do. So we have the completion of the Old Testament. 3 BC, Christ is born. Thirty A.D. Christ dies. The New Testament gets written. The Council of Jerusalem happens in the Book of Acts. Seventy A.D. Jerusalem is destroyed. The Apostolic Era ends. The Canon is closed. The Old Covenant passes away. These huge plot points. I want you to see how, on a basic level, on this one page, how relatively simple it is to understand the flow of the Bible. So, when you look at page 4, Genesis through 2 Kings gives us A through J on page 5. Leviticus, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, okay, these are going to cover A through basically K. So, they are going back. There's a two-track line. And I want that to be very well established in your minds about that structure. This is a huge amount of text. When you look at Genesis through 2 Kings, and then you also look at First and Second Chronicles and Ezra, you've covered a really huge portion of the Bible, and now all of you a sudden you understand how a lot of the Bible fits together. Okay, so I'm emphasizing this. I've talked to you about it a few times. I've got this paper trying to group it on page 4. And I've got the timeline on page 5 because my desire is to demystify the Bible to you so that you can use it better because it's your weaponry. If you pick up an AR-15 and you do not know how to operate it, it is not a very effective weapon for you. If you know how to operate it and you can disassemble it and reassemble it, you have a very effective weapon. The Bible is a weapon that is effective when you know how to use it. And so my goal is to help you to have the schematic of how it fits together. So, the relationship of the different Gospels to these different blocks of text, I hope that the internal structure of the Bible is becoming more plain to you, and that you can see how Matthew, as a Gospel that focuses on the kingly office of Jesus, how that fits very well into that line from Genesis to 2 Kings. 
and then you see Luke as a book that focuses on the priestly office of Jesus, how that fits very well in the line of First and Second Chronicles with Ezra and Leviticus. You have the Psalms as this priestly song book, and you've got Luke attaching on, and then Acts connects on to that because it shows the change of administration of the covenant. And so with all of that, you've got this now, this sort of priestly line. Okay, those are the two major historical lines is the kingly line and the, and the priestly line, and they overlap. And then all the prophetic stuff, the prophets themselves, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and the epistles, they plug in on that timeline. And your goal when reading those is to understand kind of where they fit. So I want you to think about how this is designed, all right? The prophets almost always tell you some king that's alive when they're prophesying. So you need to know the timeline of the kings, and it's going to make total sense where they fit in then. And when you read the epistles of Paul or some other apostle, if you know the book of Acts, you're going to really know a lot about those churches, and it's going to be easy to plug them in. Reading them becomes far easier when you have the timeline, the kingly timeline, and you have that priestly timeline. And you understand how this stuff fits together. It makes the Bible all fit together far more easily. So, page 6. Page 6. Here's the end of the Bible timeline. After... after 70 AD, destruction of Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is filling the earth. The postmillennial hope is that Christ reigns and he's going to return after his reign by the kingdom of grace has accomplished dominion and the great commission. Okay, so the, the earth will be made into a habitat for man that manifests physically the display of God's glory, and the church will fill the earth because all the nations will be discipled. And so there will be a deep knowledge of God all over the earth. Right, Broad is the sea and deep is the sea. Now that's postmillennialism. You need to, if, as a young man, you need to understand the basic other views of, of the trajectory of history. Okay, So I've got them written for you here. On page 6. Dispensationalism denies the covenant structure that I've given to you. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Okay? On a basic level, dispensationalism says the covenant of grace is a made-up human thing. Adam, in Genesis 3, was given a different covenant than we're in. Noah was given a different covenant than we're in. Abraham was given a different covenant than we're in. And this is where it tends to become believable to people. Moses was in a different covenant than we are. David was in a different covenant than we are. Christ is in the same covenant that we're in. The Mosaic one is always the point of attack. Everybody's perception of the Old Testament, because people are generally ignorant of the Old Testament, is there's a lot of weird stuff going on and lots of animals dying. There's a temple someplace and dudes with weird hats. 
lots of them with beards. Right? This is kind of the, the general impression is basically the Taliban with a temple cutting animals' throats. So that is not what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament goes from Adam until Christ. And Christ's life is in that. And you need to understand these major plot points. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Okay, Those major plot points. Those five points. It's not that hard. Adam. You know about Adam. He's your best friend. You hang out all the time. Noah. Familiar with that? I think you've heard the story. Moses. He's written a lot. A lot of things about Moses. That one you tend to kind of feel a little bit more confused about. But before that's Abraham. Abraham. Simple. Circumcision. Gets the gospel. He, you know, Genesis 15, right? He's accounted righteous by faith. So Moses is where we tend to get confused. And there's stuff after that. Okay, so Moses and David. Okay, so do you see how if you know, if you know from Genesis to 2 Kings, how that's not going to feel crazy to you? That's going to feel like a streamlined story. You're going to get it. So dispensationalism kind of preys on this general sense of like, oh, this is all crazy and hard to understand. And what it does is it teaches each of those, treats each of those as a different covenant. When you read the New Testament, it is very hard to get that impression that these are all different covenants. We're told in Romans 4 that we're in the same covenant with Abraham. Okay? Very plainly. So this starts to fall apart real fast. And the most plausible point of attack is on the Mosaic Covenant. So dispensationalism is going to say that you've got seven different covenants, typically, that's the typical argument, seven different covenants, and what they're doing is they're taking the covenant of works and the six administrations of the covenant of grace, and they're making them all separate, as though there's seven different ways that men can be justified before God. Modern dispensationalists are going to deny all that, and they're going to say no, and they basically sound like covenant theology, but they don't want to admit it. Okay, so that's called modified dispensationalism. So all dispensationalism is, is take the covenant of grace and chop it up like some sort of sushi roll that now has six pieces. And they have tried to make it so there's a different way of relating with God in each of them. So when you get rid of dispensationalism, you end up with three other views. Okay? But, but here's the thing. Inside of dispensationalism, dispensationalism is all premillennial. Bad news bears all over the place. All of them think we lose down here and the millennium is after Jesus comes back. And so, the question is, is Jesus going to come before the tribulation? Is he going to come in the middle of the tribulation? Or is he going to come after the tribulation? So, You'll hear this in dispensational circles. You'll hear, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Where I grew up, that was the only question about eschatology. There were no other questions. There were no other views. There was just dispensationalism. And were you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? That was what I grew up in. When I heard about pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and amillennialism, I was like, do you mean tribulationalism? Do you? I've never heard of a-trib before. Could we have that? No tribulation? That sounds nice. Let's do that. So... That right there, the setting up of the tribulation as the center thing, lets you know how big of a deal we lose here is. There's going to be a massive tribulation in the future 
we are going to lose, and that's it. And then Jesus comes back. So that's, that's how dominated this view of dispensational premillennialism is by a loser's mentality. Is that's when do we lose? So classic premillennialism says we have the kingdom now. The, the, there's a kingdom of the church right now, but it's not the millennial reign of Christ. And so classic premillennialism is going to say, yeah, there's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace, there's some way there's a kingdom of grace right now, but the kingdom of grace is not the same thing as the reigning of Christ that's going to happen. And so here's, here's the really... The, the, the big things. We just talked about dispensationalism, and you understand how if you get the covenant of grace right, you're going you're gonna to not be dispensational. And here's one of the reasons why it's obviously false. Galatians says that a new covenant doesn't annul an old covenant. Dispensationalism says, covenant, up, an old, new covenant, up, an old, new covenant, up, an old, new covenant. Okay, this is, that's what it does. You got the annulling six times, except... They then also want to say that the Jews have the old stuff and we have, Gentiles have the new stuff. And so there's sort of these separate lines of promise. Classical premillennialism is going to come back and say, okay, we have, we have the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, but we still lose down here and the millennium is in the future. And so all the stuff in Isaiah, for example, about the millennium says children are going to be born and if you die at 100, you're considered a young man. And babies are going to play with vipers and not die. And the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. And this is all going to happen in a future kingdom. So that means, get this, Christ comes back. There is then, after Christ comes back, a separate period of time where people are having children and dying. So premillennialism either has to accept that or they have to say it's all figurative. Now, most of the time when people are premillennial, what they want to do is they say this. You guys make everything figurative and we are literal. Except for all the stuff about the millennium. That's exactly what they criticize us for is that we figurativize the millennium. So now, here is... The other thing about premillennialism. The millennium is the reign of Christ wherein he rules with the saints. Okay? We are ruling now with Christ. He is at the right hand of the Father. Amillennialism acknowledges that there's a reign of Christ that's going on right now, but what it says is that this reign of Christ is really just spiritual. And so all the promises about the glorious things that are supposed to happen here are all spiritual only. And so if that's the case, then what actually happens in terms of the course of history is it's basically a sine curve up and down. Good stuff happens, bad stuff happens. Good stuff happens, bad stuff happens. And then Christ comes back. And that ends. But here's the problem. There's so much stuff in the New Testament about awesome things happening with the reign of Christ and in the Old Testament. That doesn't seem like what the Bible describes the kingdom as. And so the advance of the kingdom to where the millennium results in a victorious 
conquering of the world, and at the same time that Christ's return is after, in 1 Corinthians 15, he has conquered everything, he's put everything under his feet, so then he returns, the last thing he conquers is death, and that's the general resurrection. So we're stuck with, I guess we win here. Are you disappointed? I'm not disappointed. So, if we win here, if the millennium is now, and Christ returns, and then we're told in 1 Corinthians, after he defeats all of his enemies, he hands over the keys, he hands over the the kingdom, he hands over his authority to the Father again. That's when his kingdom ends in its current form. So, if that happens, then what we have is post-millennialism. That there's a millennium, that the millennium is basically complete, and Christ returns at its end period, and it officially ends actually after he's come back, after the judgment day. But that's the kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. So we have dispensational premillennialism, classical premillennialism, amillennialism, which means no millennialism, and postmillennialism. Christ comes back after the millennium. So all of this, the millennium is the reign of Christ, and the question is, when does Christ return in relation to it? Pre the millennium or after, post the millennium? Or is the millennium sort of this thing that is difficult to identify or entirely spiritual, and so therefore it's really, we don't need to worry about the millennium so much, and we just have this up and down here. So those are the major things for the course of history. So you need to know that we teach post-millennialism and that that means the trajectory of history since 70 AD is the kingdom filling the earth as the post-millennial hope of accomplishing dominion and the great commission is advanced and the kingdom of grace is reigning now and is growing and advancing. And that's what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come. So then... S. Christ returns, the dead are raised, there's the final judgment, enter the kingdom of glory, and this is supposed to be, we would expect, thousands of generations since the creation of the world. The second commandment says that there's blessing for right worship to the thousandth generation, actually it says thousands of generations. Okay? When you see thousands in the Bible, or a thousand, and it's used in something like a blessing or in a prophecy, what's typically happening is symbolic language for a lot. Here is what that does not mean, less than a thousand. When, when God says thousands or thousands, it doesn't mean 213. It means, it might mean 8,416. It might mean... 323,000. It's not going to mean a couple dozen. It means thousands or a thousand. So, there are four ways that people look at the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, as an ending of the Bible, is something where this, how you read it, is going to significantly impact how you, how you deal with it, and you, how you read it is going to be controlled by how you read all the other stuff earlier on. The book of Genesis, and then all the prophetic books are kind of a significant background for understanding the book of Revelation. So here's a heretical view that I want to warn you against 
because a lot of the people that you're going to read that have our view might reference some of these, and they're similar enough sounding that you need to be aware of it. There's a view called full preterism. Full preterism says everything prophesied in the book of Revelation has already happened. That would include the second coming of Jesus. That is heresy. That is a denial of the fact that we are waiting for the return of Christ, and it makes the return of Christ into a secret thing, as opposed to the greatest public event of history. The view that you will hear me teach is called partial or orthodox preterism. The word preterism, again, simply means that it's already happened or it's in the past. So most of the book of Revelation has already happened. And I've told you this before, but let me remind you. The book of Revelation is John's Olivet Discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the discussion of on the Mount of Olives, a discussion about Jerusalem and what's going to happen to it. Matthew 24 is the one where he explicitly connects it to the book of Daniel, where Jesus explicitly connects it to the book of Daniel. So the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke helps us to understand the major prophecies about what's going to happen after Christ, and it gives the two big events, the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's return for judgment. Now, partial preterism is going to read the book of Revelation as lining up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's all of that discourse. In the Reformation, overwhelmingly, from Luther even through the Westminster Assembly, the view that dominated how you read the book of Revelation was called historicism. Historicism reads the book of Revelation as essentially this book where it's gradually passing through history. And the thing about historicism is you're always trying to figure out where you are in the book. Where are we right now? And the tendency is to always say, real close to the end. Because people like to be special. Now, the problem with historicism is the difficulty of interpreting it as a book that's interpreted by the rest of the Bible. Because you end up looking for all this stuff outside of the Bible to be the fulfillments of it throughout all of history. And as a result, like none of them line up. I just, I'll give you $100 if you can find me two historicist commentaries that line up with even like three quarters of the events. Okay? Just three quarters. Okay, the reality is they, 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 they disagree so much. And so that is the frustration about historicism, is the fact that it's difficult to interpret it without just being a bunch of opinion things about history. And so if we have the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, then what we're going to find is that we need something that's going to help us to interpret the events inside of Scripture itself. And so, historicism becomes a very difficult thing to deal with in terms of the doctrine of sola scriptura, and so it seems to have died. There, is very, there are very few historicists that exist anymore, but it was a very big thing in the, in the Reformation. And in the Reformation, 
the big thing was that the Pope was the Antichrist. The Antichrist. The Westminster standards are written so that you have to acknowledge that the Pope is Antichrist. It does not have the word the Antichrist. And that is intentional to allow for a view of the Pope as just being an Antichrist. And I happily confess that the Pope is an Antichrist. Futurism asserts that the book of Revelation is principally stuff that's going to happen in the future in a tight window of time. Dispensational premillennialism tends to be that. So if you read like the Left Behind series, don't waste your time. But if you have been afflicted with that experience in the past, then you will find that that is about a short window of stuff that happens. And the claim is that it's all kind of packed into this stuff, so into this small future time. Idealism is the reading of the book of Revelation that says there's no particular historical fulfillment of the vast majority of this stuff. There's just a bunch of ways in which this repeats itself throughout history. Okay, so the book itself says that these things are going to happen soon. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, talks about how this stuff will happen within the lifetime of those who are hearers within a generation. And so there are overwhelmingly, I think, evidences that uh, we need to deal with that makes it so that a partial preterist view is necessary for understanding these things and the ways in which this was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to understand, uh, that is how it will be taught on here. So that's history. That's biblical history. This helps us to understand the reading of the scripture for it and this is what's being taught here. And so I'm going to pause there and ask if there are comments, questions, or objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. <laughs>